0: Again, we'll be uh, Joshua chapter three, one through four. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim and they, then they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. This is God's word. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Danette. Father, we are so... um, humbled and grateful here to uh, just be here worshiping you, Lord. We You've already met with us and refreshed us and encouraged us through worship uh, together with the saints this morning. And God, now we turn our attention, our hearts, our ears, our souls, our spirits, to you in your word, and we ask that your word would give us uh, a real direction and real, uh, just strengthen us, Lord God, for the journey that we are on, Lord. As you said to the people of Israel, uh, we share in that we have never gone this way before. And so we're asking you, Lord, to guide our footsteps, to give us the land that you're giving us, Lord God, and help us to stay um, following, Lord God, uh, you and your power and your presence and so, Father, we thank you for that. Lord, I, I stand here, as I, as I do every week, Lord, a, a very frail, very weak, very fallible uh, vessel, Lord. But I ask that you would allow me to speak with your power and with your authority, Lord God. And, Lord, that I would not do anything to diminish um, the the glory of your word, the glory of your gospel. Uh, but, Lord, that, that you would use this broken vessel, Lord God, to... to uh, to let your glory be seen clearly. Uh, thank you for all of that. Lord, bless everyone who hears this morning. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. So, this passage that Danette read to us, it, it describes absolutely one of the most momentous occasions in the life of the people of Israel, the, the Jews. After 400 years in slavery, after, think about that—400 years that they were enslaved, uh, doing work for others, and 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 uh, and being treated and so poorly and oppressed and abused. After 400 years, God had shown up on the scene. He had rescued His people from their Egyptian captors. He now, but it didn't end there. You know the story. He had led them through. The 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 Red Sea when they were being pursued by the armies of of Egypt he literally split the sea wide open they walked through on dry land subsequently he drowned all of their enemies uh, beyond that he provided you know there, I, I don't know it's been pretty hot around here hasn't it lately can you imagine walking uh, through a desert like this. Uh, with no kind of shade or anything. Well, what God did is he provided a cloud to shade his people from the blazing desert sun as they journeyed. In addition to that, it can get really cold in the desert. And he provided a fire, a pillar of fire, the Bible says, to provide warmth for, the, for, uh, for his people on those cold desert nights. They would have gotten hungry, not a lot of food to be found in the desert. What did God do? He provided bread that literally rained down from the sky. They'd find it on the, on the uh, ground every morning for his people to eat. When they were thirsty, not a lot of water in the desert, he would cause water to gush forth from a rock so that they could slake their thirst. And more than that, he wasn't just a God who was like a, a Walmart in the sky providing everything they needed for comfort. What he did was he gave them laws and he gave them a tabernacle a meeting place so that they could approach him even though he was vastly holy and even though he was you know unapproachable in his glory he created a system through laws and through a tabernacle where they could know their god and yet in spite of all this all of the goodness, all of the blessing that God poured out on them over and over again, the people grumbled. The people complained. And worse, they, they turned to idolatry and immorality over and over and over again. But even in spite of all that, even in times when God had to address their their stubbornness, their stiff-neckedness, their rebellion, even in the spite of all that, God brought them to the brink of the land that he had promised them. But it was there, in a place called Kadesh Barnea, it was there that the people committed the most offensive act. And it was one that cost them dearly. The, the people at directions of God through Moses sent twelve spies into the land and, and they were to, to to do a couple of things they were to out the good things that awaited them in the land that God had promised them. And they were to fully appreciate, begin to fully appreciate this undeserved blessing of God. Remember, what is an undeserved blessing of God? Well, now in our day, we call that grace. And they were just had the the, the storehouse of grace open wide open to them. And they were supposed to go look at it and appreciate it in preparation to go and get it. But when they returned to the camp, ten of these spies... They, they thought about what they, they had seen and they reported very little about the good. Oh, there was good. There was, there was, you know, they truly called it a land flowing with milk and honey. The produce of the land was incredible. Two men had to carry one cluster of grapes between them. But they reported, these ten spies reported very little about the good. And what they did is they painted this awful, bleak, Picture of the, of the inhabitants of the land. They were giants, they said. And they all lived in fortified cities. And, and and the the consensus of these people was that, and they, they, they convinced the others as well that if, that if they tried to enter this land, they would be defeated. They would be enslaved or even killed. And they made that decision. They came to that conclusion even though the God who had already done so much for them And and had promised to give it to them, had said it was theirs. And they just absolutely blew that off. It's too hard. People are too big. Their cities are too strong. And so what was their sin? Their sin was simple. It was unbelief. I'm not going to focus on this, but I've told you this over and over again. You have never sinned ever without it having an element of unbelief in it. We always, we, we lie, we cheat, we steal, we do all kinds of things because we think that that's the quickest road to getting what we want. It's unbelief. We don't believe that God is enough for us. They knew, they had seen it with their own eyes in ways that you and I never will, they'd seen what God had done already. They knew what He had promised and yet they chose Not to believe. Now, how many of you, by a show of hands, would say that was a major insult to a holy God? So out of these 12 spies, I said 10 of them brought back a bad report. Two of them, only two of them, guys named Caleb and Joshua, who is the subject of the book we just read this morning, only those two guys maintained their faith in the promises of God. They said, we are well able to take this land. Why? Because God has promised it. But because of this betrayal of His people, remember it was, it was the ten spies and everybody who listened to them believed them. Because of this betrayal, God swore in His wrath that none of these people, now keep in mind, this wasn't a crowd like we have today. It was, it was upwards of three million Israelites. And he swore that not one of them would enter the promised land except for the two that believed. And and those who were under 20 years old. When Moses died... God made Joshua, one of these men of faith, the new leader of the people. And because of this death sentence for their unbelief, the people spent 40 long years. Now you guys have heard that all your life. They spent 40 years wandering in the desert. But I want you to just think for a minute, and we're gonna do a little survey here. 40 years wandering aimlessly in the desert until everyone under the age, or over the age rather, of 20 at the time that this happened, except for Joshua and Caleb, dropped dead in the desert. And and so here's what the survey we're going to do. That's like wandering nonstop from the year 1980 to today. Now everybody's going to look around here in a minute, but I'm going to ask you: Raise your hand if you were not even born in 1980. Okay, you see that? Raise them up high because I want I want some of us older people to see them. Okay. People who were not even born in 1980. So now everybody who was born in 1980, raise your hand. Yeah. We would all be dead, okay? So 40 years, that's a long time, isn't it? But now, where, where, where Danette took us this morning, now the hour had finally come. They were back at the border of the promised land. They blew it the first time, but now they're back. They're at the border of the Promised Land, the Jordan River. And they're excited, and they're ready to listen carefully to God's instruction. He tells them over and over in the first couple of chapters of of Joshua, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. I am with you. And they are ready to hear it. So God gives them clear instructions as they are encamped, ready to enter the land. Let's look at it one more time. This is what he says. He says, As soon... As you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you should go, or shall go. The Ark of the Covenant, for those of you who don't know, was a golden box that the people were commanded to make, and it carried the, the, the pieces, the broken pieces of the Ten Commandments, the first set of them that Moses broke in his anger when he found them making a golden calf, it, it, it um, it held Aaron's staff that that even though it was a dead stick it, it budded and and started to produce buds on it to to, to as God's sign that Aaron was his chosen leader it contained a sample of the heavenly bread I described earlier that just that fell from heaven um, and, and uh, that they had eaten for 40 years and more importantly so all that's important that's what the the ark contained but more importantly than that the ark uh was was understood as the dwelling place of God. If you've ever seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have an idea of what this ark looked like. And there was these, these these images of two angels spreading their wings over the lid of this ark. And that lid was called the mercy seat. And it's where once a year the, the, the high priest would take the blood of a perfect lamb and, and sprinkle it on, on before God to satiate his wrath against the people for their sinning. And it was an example of what Jesus would one day do for all of us. Aren't you glad he did. And that was where God was. Jesus, the Bible says, entered into the very presence of God and and, and presented His blood, not the blood of a lamb, but the uh, blood of His blood before the mercy seat. And so this mercy seat that, uh, on top of this ark or this box was very, very important. And so uh, if we were to, to summarize what this ark meant, it represented like no other item in the history of the Jews, the presence and the power of God. It's where God dwelt. It's where uh, the, it was kept in the Holy of Holies, and, and it was very important. So God gave them a specific set of instructions with regard to this ark as they proceeded into the promised land. He said, number one, this is the easy one. He said, follow it. Now, why is that important? Think about this. If you are going, if we're going to go attack level land this morning, let's say we get us up together as an army, we're going to go take over level land. What do we want? Well, I'm going to go to the biggest and the strongest of you, and I'm going to arm you, and I'm going to send you in first, and I'm going to go, I'm not as strong as many of you, so I'm going to go in behind you. But what they did is they put the priests, a bunch of preachers, carrying a box and they said those are the guys you're supposed to follow are you following me they said you're the ones that, that you're the, the, the those are the guys you're supposed to follow they said that the, the, we don't need heroes we don't need warriors to draw swords and lead the people into the promised land and make a name for themselves you are to stay back to follow and to learn where you're supposed to go You're going to know where you're supposed to go by following the power and the presence of God. But that wasn't the only instruction they had. They were to stay 2,000 cubits away. That that 2,000 cubits, you may not be familiar with that uh, unit of measurement, but that's about an 18-inch thing, so let's say 3,000 feet away from the ark. For those of you who can do the math real quick, like I can, kidding. Um, it's a, it, it, That's ten football fields. So they were not to edge up close to the ark. They were supposed to give it a wide berth. Stay far away from the ark. Do not come near it, was the instruction of God. As God's dwelling place, what does that mean? As God's dwelling place, they were not to treat it as common or hold it in contempt. And for all these strict regulations, follow it, stay 3,000 feet away from it. For all these strict regulations, God gave them a reason. He said, you have not passed this way before. See, they were not to make the mistakes that their forefathers had made at Kadesh Barnea. God had rescued them. God had preserved them this far and he had no intention of tapping out. They would not take the promised land, the heavily armored, fortified promised land in their own streak. They would do it by following God. God was taking them somewhere they had never been before. And the only way they were going to to win this time was by fully relying on him in humble submission in order to succeed in their mission. That was the cost of success here. They were not to push ahead of him, and they were certainly not to second-guess him. So it seems to me... As we've kind of considered the historical basis for what I want to share with you this morning, it seems to me that there is a lot, there's so much for us to learn from this short little passage, fairly obscure little passage. See, if you are a Christian this morning, some of you are, some of you aren't, if you are a Christian this morning, you at one time wandered In the desolate wasteland, the barren wastes of sin, before Jesus rescued you. If you are a Christian. And and in order for you to become a Christian, the old life had to die in that desolate, desolate place before you could enter into the life of promise. It had to die. If you had it in the old life, you ain't bringing it into the new one. That has to drop dead in the desert of sin So that you can come into the promised land. Everybody following me? Jesus said in Mark 8. He illustrated this principle so well. We all are familiar with the scripture. He said for whoever. Would save his life. Self preservation. The most important thing. Whoever would save his life. Will lose it. But whoever loses his life. For my sake. And for the gospels. Will save it. The gospel requires that a man or woman has to die to the old kind of life in order to begin a new eternal life. And the Bible calls the new life of believer, over and over, it calls it a a, a way or a path or a journey. Over and over in the scriptures it says that. And as a redeemed sinner... This is what I want you to understand. If you're a Christian, you are a sinner who has been redeemed by Jesus. If you're a redeemed sinner, you are now going to some place you have never been before. I'm not just talking about heaven. There is a conquest in this life of faith that God wants to engage in, wants you to engage in, and you've never done it before. That applies to everybody. It applies to the preacher and the ones in the pews. We are all going somewhere we've never gone before. If you're a Christian, this is always the case. You will not arrive in this life. Arrival happens when this life is well over. And every day, you and I are faced with the same Choice that the children of Israel had every single day. Are we going to fear the giants that inhabit the land or are we going to trust the God who rescued us from slavery, who defeated our enemies, sin, death, and the devil? So what does our text have to say to us today about how to proceed on this journey? First, we are called to follow, not to lead. I, I know what you're thinking. You know that the, the we have to have leaders. We'll talk about that in a minute. But as the as the ark represented the power and the presence of God to the ancient Israelite, now God demonstrates His power through the cross. He demonstrates His presence through through giving us the Holy Spirit. And so that's how we follow now, by by keeping our eyes on the cross and and following the Holy Spirit in His directions and not grieving Him. Secondly, we're not to have, and this is really important, we're not to have such a spirit of familiarity with God that we take Him for granted. Though we have intimacy with God... Because of what Jesus did, no one's questioning that. We should never hold him in contempt by getting overly accustomed to him. Knowing God, let me put it to you in the simplest terms I can. Knowing God should blow your mind and satisfy your heart every single day. The Bible, prayer, the saints, they should never become common or unimpressive to us. Rather, we should remain, we should maintain rather a respectful distance of reverence in the fear of the Lord. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And doing this, we can do that. We can maintain a, a, a respectful distance regarding the Lord's holiness, even in the depths of worship, even in the depths of intimacy. Look at Psalms chapter 50. And God delivers an indictment to his people for doing exactly the opposite. Look at this. Verse 21, he says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. What's their crime? You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver And here's the promise, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So let's go back and let's consider these orders. The follow God and and remain this reverential distance, or maintain this reverential distance. What does it mean that we are to follow and not lead? As I said earlier, obviously the body of Christ, the church, has and needs leaders in it. Even Joshua was called God's leader. But what I mean is that we should avoid... The dual sins of either self-confidence or presumption. Let me, let me describe what I mean. So in the Christian life, there is a spectrum of wisdom. Wisdom takes different forms is what I'm saying in the Christian life. There is uh, what we'll call a common wisdom. You could even call it common sense. A, everybody in this room, everybody in America values or at least says they value common sense. And what I'm talking about is this kind of wisdom that's described most in the book of Proverbs. It includes ideas like control your temper, like don't get into debt, and don't listen to fools. Those are common wisdom, and and it's universal wisdom. And you don't have to be a Christian to understand or benefit from that kind of wisdom. But on the other end of the spectrum, all included in the life of a Christian, is supernatural wisdom. And this is the kind of wisdom that tells you to go out in a field and begin to construct an ark when there's not a cloud in the sky. It's the kind of wisdom that says the very best military strategy is to march around the city seven times blowing trumpets. It's the kind of wisdom that says in the middle of a raging storm, get out of the boat, walk on water to Jesus. That's supernatural wisdom this is not never misunderstand this this is not common sense if if you and i go fishing tomorrow if you and I, i'm not because i'm going on vacation but if you if you and i go fishing tomorrow and i'm in the boat and say oh you know what i forgot the ice chest i'm going to get out of the boat walk to the shore and 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 um and get the ice chest and I'll come back None of you are going to say, well, Mark has incredible common sense. You're going to say, I hope Mark can swim, is what you're going to say. This is not common sense. And yet Jesus Christ said, I love this passage, wisdom is justified by her deeds. What is he saying there? He's saying that the fruit of an action, what is produced by the action, displays the wisdom of that action. Sometimes... Christians have to take steps that make no common sense. But yet are proven to be infinitely wise when all the dust settles. It's not a bad thing to do what makes sense. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to elevate some kind of you know, mystical wisdom. It, 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 it's not a bad thing to do what makes sense. But listen to me. If you boast of being only sensible, I always make rational Thought Well thought through decisions. If you're only being boasting about being sensible and you never, ever, ever are guilty of walking out of your comfort zone in risky faith, listen to me, you are only being self-confident and you have no confidence in God whatsoever. Your wisdom that you're claiming and that you're boasting in is simply a mask for your own fear, your own unbelief in God's written word and His proven deeds. But on the other hand, conversely, if you're one of those people that is constantly hearing voices that you think makes you look like some kind of superhero for your great faith, yet if you're honest, your leaps of faith usually result in great crashes, then you are not a person of great faith. You, my friend, are a person of great presumption. So here we are. How on earth do we walk that tightrope? How do we know when it's time to invest wisely? And how do we know when it's time to give it all away? How do we know this? How do we avoid the pitfalls by not knowing it? We do it first by following God where he leads. Sounds simple, right? Well, let me explain a little deeper. We don't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore. What we have is not something inferior, but something far superior. What God has given us instead of of a object that represented His power and presence, we've been given the written Word of God. We've been given the internal voice of the Spirit. And we have been given the wisdom that resides in the family of God, in the body of Christ. And hear me clearly, we all desperately need all three. All three of those things are vital to your life as a Christian. The word of God is great. As I mentioned about the book of Proverbs, the word of God will often give us very clear, do this, don't do that kind of instructions and guidance for life. But there are times, if you've been a Christian long, you know this, there are times when you can't find a clear instruction for a specific situation. Do I take this job? Do I move my family? You know, do I give to this or give to that? Those sort of things. So when we can't find a clear instruction for a specific situation in the written Word of God, He has given us the guiding voice of the Holy Spirit to lead us in the path of wisdom. But as I mentioned, every one of us has experienced or known somebody who said they were hearing the Holy Spirit. Or like I said, maybe we've done it ourselves. I know I have. And, you, and, and wisdom was proved inaccurate by your by your by uh, the, the fruit of your wisdom did not come to fruit, so to speak, as Jesus said. So the, so the third thing that I want you to understand, that I really want you to focus on, so you have the scriptures, you have the Holy Spirit. The third thing on the list is the most overlooked. See, most people think, if you just did a poll, that they have a church, so that Sunday morning they can spend 90 minutes listening to music, and, and, and maybe a little preaching. But God... Has actually given you the body of Christ, the brothers and sisters sitting around you, so that you can, so that they can help you hear God. Did you know that? Really, did you know that? It's not just the Word, it's not just the Spirit, as as far superior as those things are. the, The third and most overlooked way that God helps you hear Him is through the wisdom that is found in the body of Christ. So what does that mean for us? We should get in the habit of saying to our brothers and sisters that are surrounding us right now, we should say, I think I understand what the Scriptures say. And I think, I feel, uh, that the Holy Spirit is leading me this particular way. But what wisdom can you offer me? It's why in our church we have elders. It's why we have membership and membership meetings where we can all kind of help each other with collective wisdom. The apostles, when asked to give counsel to a specific situation in Acts 15, said in a letter, responding to that specific situation, to the people who asked, look at look at these words carefully. They were responding to the question, and they said, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What's happening there? The Holy Spirit spoke, they conferred together, nothing that they said disagreed with either scripture or what they felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, and, and, they, and they came to their conclusion. Our hesitance... To trust in the collective wisdom to be found in the community of believers can only be explained by one of three things. Ignorance of what's available here, sinful pride, or a deep insecure mistrust of others. But what about this second instruction? What does it mean to us today? There shall be a distance between you and it, the ark, about 2,000 cubits, 3,000 feet in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you should go. What is it that God's saying to 21st century Christians here? Let me tell you a story. A time came under Saul's, Saul was the first king of Israel, and a time came under his kingship, he was a wicked king, that the Ark of the Covenant was actually captured by their enemies, the Philistines. They were in battle and and the Philistines took the Ark, but they didn't have it long because as soon as it came into their camp, God cursed them for taking it. And, and so they wanted to get rid of it just as fast as they got it. They did not keep it long. So what they did is they loaded it on a cart pulled by two milk cows, and they just let it loose to go where it would. And, 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 and with that, that, uh, uh, the, that the ark, they put a box with, with five golden tumors, you heard me right, Five golden tumors and five golden mice. And these were representative of the curses that they had experienced. And they sent this, this cart with these this golden objects and the Ark of the Covenant just on its way. Now the, the, the cows were led by God as assigned to the Philistines to this place called Beth Shemesh. And, and it wound up in the field of a man named Joshua. And the people of Beth Shemeth, being Jews, were really happy when they saw it. They were overjoyed. They couldn't believe what God had done in in, in allowing the ark to come back for them, without a battle, without anything. And so what they did, they immediately went into a worship service. They killed the cows, they made a fire with the wood of the cart, and they offered sacrifices to God. Happy story, right? No, that is not where the story ends. Second Samuel. Chapter 6, verse 19. And he, speaking of God, struck some of the men of Bethshemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. That means God killed them. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? God had given, in the law of the Bible, he had given his people very clear instructions about how the Ark of the Covenant was to be transported. It was to be covered It was to be carried only by uh, Levites, Levitical priests, and it was absolutely under no conditions ever to be approached. Now, all these men, being faithful Jews, would have known this. But in their celebration, they held the holiness, the power, and the authority of God in contempt every bit as much as the Philistines did when they took the ark in the first place. Think about that. The Jews were no better than the Philistines. They both had contempt for the power, the authority, and and the majesty of God. And as a result, 70 of them died. I've told this story in sermons before, and a couple of others like it in scripture, and there's usually two responses to this story in a crowd. Some respond like the, the, the survivors at Beth Shemeth do, with awe and fear. They think about what just transpired in that text, and they just it blows their mind, it shakes them. And they say like the survivors, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? May I say to you, that is the proper response. Because this response shows a deep reverence for God's holiness. And others in the room, probably right now, Think, my goodness, God should really lighten up. I mean, all they did was just look at the ark. They cast a gaze on it and they're dead. But in saying this, you show that you have little to no regard for God's holiness, His power, His authority, or His word. And this, brothers and sisters, is a huge problem. In modern Christianity. We've heard so many times since we were little bitty babies. God loves you. And He has a wonderful plan for your life. And everything is about how good God is gonna do it. He's just gonna fluff your pillow every night. Make you just, His whole existence translates to you into this idea of a being who lives to make you happy we've heard that so much that we've begun to think, as that psalm we read earlier, that God is just like us. And the result, since there's nothing distinct or, or kind of uh, uh, transcendent about God, the, the, the problem with growing this familiar with God is that we've actually become bored with God. And yet, that doesn't hold up scripturally. Paul... The apostle describes Jesus as him who alone has immortality. Listen, who dwells in unapproachable light. Whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Listen, people, there is nothing common about God, if Jesus Christ, the risen, resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ, were to make himself physically visible and walk in this room right now, none of you would run to him and slap him a high five. Every one of us would fall at his feet as dead men and women. That is how transcendent, how glorious Jesus is. The Apostle John said that exactly. He said that he fell at his feet as a dead man when he saw him in the book of Revelation. And yet, oftentimes, if we're honest, we yawn our way through the singing of his glorious praise. We barely stay awake while his eternal word is proclaimed and explained. None of us have ever gone this way before. That's why this instruction is so important. In order to know the way, we must not only follow the presence and power of God in the scriptures, the voice of the spirit, and in the congregation of the saints, but we must do so with the highest possible reverence for God's holiness, and if I can coin a phrase, his otherliness. God is nothing like us. God is nothing like us. He dwells, the Bible says, in the highest heaven. And the earth is but his footstool. And he dwells in glory. He dwells in unapproachable light. And by contrast, we are nothing but dust. And yet, and yet, as high as he is, as holy as he is, he has chosen To cast his love upon us. To bestow his grace upon us. Don't misunderstand with anything I've said this morning. God loves his children. He wants to know us. God is a father who cares for us. But his holiness, even while all that remains true, and there are distinct benefits to the believer because of those truths, his holiness is never to be flippantly regarded. Let me, let me tell you something. I get nervous. This is going to be a little personal, so just allow it. I get nervous when people who claim to be Christians can watch television shows and movies and and tell jokes that are just filled with all kinds of blasphemies and flippancy about the Lord. I see people post memes all the time that that are putting words in Jesus' mouth or depicting uh, the, the things He said in some sort of a comic way. Can I please warn you about that? The holiness of Almighty God is not to be flippantly regarded. Keep a reverential distance from the power and the presence of God. You will never know where to go in the Christian life if your view of God is overly familiar. You will only wander aimlessly, or worse yet, you'll perish in your stubborn pride and your self-confidence. It is only those who bow who proceed and who succeed. That's it. Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite you forward um, to receive the communion elements here at the tables. Thinking about these, these words that I shared with you this morning and how they applied to the table of the Lord. I thought about the holiness of God and how everything I said about Him was true. How that He was so holy, He told Moses, That no one can see me and live. He was serious about his holiness. He, when, when, as I said earlier, when John saw him in the book of Revelation, he fell at his feet as dead. He did not see an emaciated pale man on a cross. He saw a man clothed in In uh, shining garments with a golden sash around him, with feet like burnished bronze, whose eyes burned like fire, his hair was as white as snow, and the living word of God proceeded out of his mouth as a sword. That is a terrifying picture. There is no way that you could ever know dwell in the presence of or experience a God like that, if it were not for the element, or what these, these elements represent. They represent a God who, though He was nothing like us, became exactly like us. And in that form, taking the form of a servant, as it says in Philippians 2, He took all of your sins... All of your self-confidence, all of your presumption, he took it upon himself and bore it to the cross. For he was beaten, or he was mocked, or he eventually bled and died. And he did that so that the God of holiness that I've described to you today could be known. He said in the scriptures, "They, I will be their God and they will be my people only because of the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered from you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you. God, we can't even imagine, with all of our fault, all of our sin, with all of our failure, we can't imagine a God like you. And yet a God like you became a a, a human like us and bore our sins on your precious holy shoulders. Your body was broken, it was beaten, it was Spit upon it. Your beard was torn out. You had no beauty that anyone would desire you. And Lord, you did that all for us because you wanted to know us. So Lord, help us as we take this element of bread, not to forget your holiness, but to appreciate it even more. The amazing thing that's been done for us that a holy God who dwells in unapproachable light with the earth as his footstool would come and rescue us. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Paul goes on to say in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the blood of Jesus that washes us whiter than snow, that makes us clean, Lord, we, again, in our sinfulness, Lord, we were only worthy to fall dead in the desert of sin. But, Lord, you you have resurrected us. You've made us brand new. And you have given us the promised land of the gospel promises. The promised land of eternal life. The promised land of fellowship with you. And, God, none of that would have been possible without the the shed blood of Jesus washing us clean from all of our sin and all of our iniquity, all of our unbelief. So God, help us this morning as we consider these things to be truly grateful, truly thankful for your rescuing power. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the cup. You would place your hands in a receiving position. I want to pronounce... The the I think the most appropriate benediction for today in this in all the scriptures. First Timothy one seventeen. To the King of the Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.